2011. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neurobiology Podcast. Today we're talking to Philip Sabus. He's an associate professor of physiology at the Keck Center for Integrative Neuroscience um, at UCSF. Hi, Phil. Hello. Can I call you Phil? No, Philip. Sorry, or Philip. Flip, actually, people flip. call me Flip. Flip. Okay. Uh, his lab uses a combination of behavioral, phys physiological, and modeling approaches to explore sensory integration and movement planning, among other things, I should say. Uh, around the room, we've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. We've got Nicole Witta. Hello. Hello, guys. And we've got Todd Troyer. Good afternoon. And I'm your host, Selma Karashi. So, um, Flip, no, Philip, in, uh, in your work, you're, you're really interested in building simple, statistically principled models that account for complex behaviors, but that, that still remain relevant and, and specifically tailored to observe physiology of real neurons and, and real neural circuits in real time. Um, could you tell us what that means? Talk to, our, <laughs> <laughs> talk to our listeners a little bit about some of those ideas. And, and well, that's a small question. Uh, it's sort of like, what, what does it mean to do theory in neuroscience? But basically... When you try to understand, when you try to make sense of physiological data, or when you try to ask how things might work, how it might you might see the kinds of things that we see uh, in behavior or in physiology, um, there are this this is this is where theory, for me at least, this is the, the the best thing that theory can do for us. It can let us build bridges between experimental data and principle, big ideas that, that sort of make sense and allow us to synthesize lots of information. Um, in a way that we can remember. I'm the kind of researcher, I'm the kind of person who, uh, you know, can't remember anything unless I have some way of being able to kind of rederive it from first principles. So I'm always looking for, for principles that allow us to, to hang information off of it. Now, in the motor psychophysics community, and, and actually in many psychophysical uh, communities, and I should back up for one second and just say psychophysics is a little bit of an odd term. Um, it, it's kind of a 19th century term, but basically it's used today to mean quantitative behavioral studies. So when I say motor psychophysics, I'm talking about looking at behavior, um, having people come to the lab and make movements in a way that uh, are we're sort of quantitatively analyzing the movement. And in particular today, it often means in the context of computational models. And so there's a, a trend in the motor psychophysics community to model behavior in a way uh, to explain it in terms of how things should be or how things um, might want to be. Uh, you can call it, think of those as normative models. What's the right way to do something? Of course, there's no right way to do anything. It just depends on how you set up the problem. And so in the motor community, often the problem is set up as being uh, one of a statistical problem. Like, uh, if I see the world out there and I want to figure out what I want to do with it, I should try to figure that out in the way that it has the least amount of variance or something like that. Or it could be posed in a more uh, engineering way, like a control theoretic sense. I want to get my arm there and I want to do it in a way that minimizes maybe variability again, um, with some constraints like I don't want to break my arm or I want to do it in a way that's smooth and comfortable or something like that. And so these are kind of sort of first principle approaches. I know what the problem is and I wanted to do it in a way that in some sense is best or the word in the community that people use a lot is optimal. And now optimal in some ways is a little bit unfortunate because it makes it sound like there's some truly optimal thing in the colloquial sense. This is the best. This is optimal. But in practice, what it really means is that you set up a framework like statistics, and by optimal estimation, you mean the one that gives you maybe the least variance or something like that. So that's one sort of branch of modeling. 
And it, it turns out that, that those kinds of approaches are very powerful. You can explain a lot of behavior by using those kinds of approaches. Um, and there, there are many people who work in that field. Um, some of the names that are, that are well known, people like uh, Daniel Wolpert and Motorov, Reza Shamir and others, many other people. It's a very, it's a big field. It's a vibrant field. Have worked on that. And they've done a lot to help us understand, um, and I'm, I'm part of that field as well, to help us understand why people move the way they do, which is all well and good, but that doesn't really tell us anything about the brain. Okay, so that's one line. Now, on the other side of the coin, there are people who go in and measure neural activity in typically a, a non-human primate um, while they do the same kinds of tasks, maybe an eye movement task, an arm movement task. And they look at patterns of activity and they say things like, this brain area seems to be involved in this and these kinds of representations that I see. In other words, the patterns of activity that, that go along with a particular sensory Stimulus or with a particular movement, we call those representations, those patterns of activity, those representations look like this and such and such, and that makes sense because if I coded it this way, maybe I could, um, uh, you know, it would confer these um, properties. Maybe it would be, um, a, again, maybe a, a lower variance way of encoding movement or something like that. But there's very little work that's been done up to this point to bridge those two fields, to sort of go from understanding at a very high level, at a conceptual level, what the brain is trying to do is optimize movement by minimizing variability or something like that. And then these are the representations. These are the dynamics that we see of real neurons in a brain. And what we've been trying to do uh, in my lab is to bridge that gap um, partly through by doing sort of matched experiments, psychophysical and physiological experiments using the same paradigm, and also by using um, network models that uh, can mimic these sort of normative statistical models, but also can give us um, maybe a little bit more of direct predictions about what you expect to see in the physiology. So I was wondering if what you think about, as you're describing that, um, as a as simple kind of <laughs> to break down those different approaches. So one of the things that a typical physiologist does is set up a task, uh, say like a reaching task, and has different variables, and you want to see how the activity of neurons tracks those variables. So that's one idea of representation. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, that's and then you often average, right? So a lot of it's finding the mean relationship or the typical relationship with parameters uh, as you vary them to the mean activity. Um, where a lot of the optimality framework, and I, this is what I don't know whether this is a fair distinction at all, um, it's really, you know, talking about variability and minimizing variability. Um, and they kind of intersect when you get different components of the task. But is that is that a reasonable way to, to think about different mindsets? I mean, they're, they're they're changing now, but I think that some classical way of of uh, of uh, looking at things because if you have behavior, you don't you can't find the relationship between the mean of two things. You just have the you have the behavior, so you can look at the structure of the covariability of different aspects of the behavior. Um, but you're really stuck with correlations and thinking about distributions. Well, yes and no. I mean, it, it is true that these days much of the motor field is focused on variability, uh, but that wasn't always true. So going back to sort of the earliest optimal models of optimality or optimal control models for movement control um, date back to, uh, uh, to Mar Flash and Neville Hogan, for example, who were looking at 
minimizing uh, the, the or optimizing the smoothness, minimizing the, the jerk is the word, which is the third temporal derivative. It basically just means to make smooth movements. Okay, And those were clearly just deterministic models that said, given the many different choices that you can make to move, how might you do it? Well, why don't you do the one that's smooth? And there have been a whole host of models that have come out since then that are optimal control models, but deterministic optimal control models. And in fact, it wasn't really until um, a, a seminal paper by uh, Chris Harris and Daniel Wolpert where they argued that it was the variability was the critical thing. And if you model motor noise in the right way, then by minimizing variability, you've got things that looked a lot like smoothest constraints and other things, that the focus shifted that way. Um, and then since then, other people have talked about optimal control, feedback control in the context of variability and so forth. But um, I don't think that, that the, the optimality models per se needed to be statistical. It's just that the current thinking um, focuses on the statistics. Then you also write that the current thinking in physiology largely is still focused on the mean. What, what is it when you say, what is this area code for? What's the representation? Usually what you mean is um, you, you, the way you do those experiments is you have a particular behavior you like. And you have the monkey do that many times, maybe 10, 20, 100, 1,000. And then you, you average the firing rate across uh, uh, those trials. And so obviously that's a very different approach, and it would be awfully difficult to go from that to having anything to say about, about variability. But then again, um, in the past, oh, I'd say about five or 10 years, quite a few labs have been studying neural variability, in the relation, including my own lab, in the relationship between neural variability and movement and relationship to neural variability and behavioral variability. So I think historically it has been true that those that it's kind of broken out that way, but I think that's that there's nothing inherent in that distinction. So the, the relationship between the behavioral experiments and physiological experiments is historically, I think, correct me about this if I'm wrong, but I think that that at least in the motor system, those are sort of notion. On the basis of my behavioral experiments, I should see neurons in place such and so in the brain that do such and such a thing in relation to behavior. And then I hunt for those, and then I find the neurons, perhaps a small minority of neurons. Maybe it doesn't matter too much, because that's not the only thing this brain area is doing. But I find some neurons in that area that are doing what I said they ought to. I declare victory. <laughs> and uh, uh, it's very rare, I think, for people to go into an, a brain area, find out what the neurons are doing, and then ask, what do I predict about behavior from that? <laughs> so why does it go that way? Well, so Charlie, I think, I think you're trying to make it sound like it's bad, um, what's happened. And, <laughs> I, I, would argue, really and I would argue that that might even bad. be better than what often happens. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so so there, that, there is some of that, of course. Um, there's some, what's even worse, in, I guess, in some ways, which is to, to find a little shimmer of something that makes sense. Say it was the thing that you thought you should look for, figure out why, <laughs> that uh, you know, and then, and then post hoc justify. But, but I think that, I think neither of those is actually the dominant, the dominant modus operandi in, in sensory motor physiology, or maybe, for that matter, all of systems, uh, neurophysiology and monkey. I think the dominant mode up until maybe a decade ago was really more exploratory find areas that seem to be involved in a movement, either because of maybe um, ablation studies or, uh, or, or 
by looking at if human patients or um, maybe just by physiology, these areas were identified as being important. And then just going in and just sort of cataloging what, what the relationships were between simple, simple behaviors and movement. This area is involved in this behavior. This area uses this kind of representation. And then maybe using ablation and stimulation and other things just to kind of work out at a very coarse level what the pathways were. And it's only more recently that people have gotten to the point, even where they would start to talk about how different representations, at least in, in our community, would really have a, a, a major impact. Now, well, I think in motor, I mean, I don't want to yeah. contradict you uh, on it. No, yet, please do. But, uh, <laughs> but um, in motor cortex, it seemed so people sort of focused on does, do motor cortex neurons represent movement or muscles or something? Oh, you know, that's right. That's and right. And then, uh, Never the twain shall meet and, and bang it out uh, over that for a long period of time. Yeah, that's right. And I, I guess what, I, what you're saying is sort of consistent with what I was saying. And it seemed like what more people were trying to do was to figure out where each piece of cortex lie on what, what seemed to be the sort of obvious pathway from perception to action. And so you know that if you're going to move, you need to do this computation, and then you need to do this computation, and then you need to do this computation. And so the question is, what is motor cortex doing? Is it encoding, you know, sort of the task-relevant variables? Is it encoding, is it encoding um, joint angles? Is it encoding mu muscle forces? And so it's got to be one of those, and let's go look. And that's right. There's certainly a lot of that. Um, I think that that style is largely dying out because... People who look at detail, in detail, at the neural representations find that it's just not that simple. And the truth is that it was never that simple. So, you know, you, you pick motor cortex in particular, and, um, you know, there was, there was a long period of time when this sort of view that, that, that motor cortex encodes movements in, in a sort of direction-specific fashion. There are cosine tuning curves, and you can read those out. Um, with a population vector code and that sort of thing with the dominant way to view motor cortex. But that said, everyone in the field knew the literature showing that there was a force component that, looking at single joint movements, right? And so the, the question is, how are we to interpret those the, the fact that you could do all these admittedly amazing things with motor cortex neurons? And when I say amazing, what I mean was that you could record from a bunch of neurons and with that predict in advance of the movement which way the monkey was going to move in a complex you know, three-dimensional or even a higher-dimensional movement. That is still sort of impressive that you can do that, right? Now, that said, I think now the view is that, yes, it's true that you can do that with simple things like cosine tuning. But the way I like, I like to think about it is cosine tuning, and this is actually a mathematical fact. It was something that was pointed out years ago in, under various guises by people like Sandra Musivaldi and, and Terry Singer, who it, it, I think many people don't still recognize it, is that, that cosine tuning is exactly a linear approximation if you're having a monkey make, or any animal, make a movements to a, a, a set of targets in a circle. So linear approximation, first order linear approximation, anything, you know, I've got a nonlinear curve, I'm gonna, I'm gonna approximate it with a line, that plays out as cosine tuning when you have a monkey reach to a bunch of different targets. And so those models were powerful exactly because they were in the colloquial and in the and, the, and in the and in the analytic the, the, the formal sense, a first order approximation to what was really going on. And they throw out all the neurons that were nonlinear. <laughs> yes, well, they, <laughs> perhaps. <laughs> um, but 
but, but then what they showed, I mean, even back in the early studies, they showed that if you move the arm to another part of the workspace, the cosine tuning shifts. So it's clearly not that everything is linear. It's just an approximation. And what has happened more recently is that people have been publishing papers sort of facing that head on. There was a nice paper by Mark Turchin and Christian Schnoy where they looked at temporal complexity of neurons. Um, we have a paper and, and a very similar paper by Larry Snyder's group where we show that the, the, the reference frame of neural activity in parietal cortex it doesn't look very simple. It's highly heterogeneous across the population in any given brain area. And so I think the dominant, the, the, the pendulum is swinging the other way at the moment, where people are acknowledging that, that neural representations are very complex. And then the question is, so what does that mean? How are we to understand that? And it's hard to understand uh, these complexities. And, um, you know, I think there are, there are a couple of different ways one might approach the problem. The way that I like to do it is to say, well, okay, let's try to think about then these sort of statistical principles of these areas, the properties. How are these, um, how are these representations distributed? They're, they're heter heterogeneous, but there's still some distribution. And how would that make sense in the context of, say, for example, the goal to represent many different signals at the same time and use them for many different kinds of movements? How could you maybe reconceptualize the problem, not as here's a, a, a set of the, the canonical view of cortex maybe was representation transformation. You represent something, you transform to another representation, you transform to another representation, and out of that you get serial computation, just like a computer. And I think the more dominant view now is, well, what you have is a very complicated interactive dynamical system with many different brain areas, and maybe things aren't so simple and clean and sequential, but maybe we can still understand that using, uh, using theory. So how does that... How does that inform our idea about localization of function in the cortex? So one of the things that impressed me about uh, something that you've talked about is uh, two areas of, of the cortex that are near each other. One is viewed as often as carrying visually oriented information about position, one uh, proprioceptive. And when you compared them, they both carried both, but their distributions differed a little bit. Do I get that right? Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. So, uh, so now as I look at those two areas, I start to feel that the difference between them becomes sort of not so great as I thought it was before. And, and then in your, uh, in, in your sort of grand model of the, of the cortical arrangement, where these like, local networks interacting with each other, then the, the localization of function in the cortex seems to be waning in that view, away from the weight. Yeah, that's right. Localization of function is definitely waning uh, in that view, and there's experimental evidence to back it up. Not actually from my lab. The, the, some of the, quite on target to the sort of things that we're talking about right now, which um, this, this sort of model is, is we've published in a, um, a review article in uh, Progress in Brain Research in this year. Uh, and, and in that model, we sort of say, well, maybe you shouldn't think about parietal cortex and frontal cortex is containing sort of specific circuits for things like reaching or saccade movements, but, but, um, and, the, and, and, or as representing specific stages in a computation, but rather, um, there may be biased that way. There are areas that are more involved in reaching and more involved in saccade. Well, uh, Larry Snyder has been doing a lot of work in this area and he's got, uh, beautiful data showing that, you know, LIP does have activity during reaching, which has been known for a while. I mean, he showed that actually when he was in Richard Danielson's lab. And similarly, you know, the, the other areas in the, in the, in the uh, interparietal sulcus, MIP and, and PRR, the parietal reach region and so forth, um, have saccade-related activity in them. And, uh, and there's, 
you know, if you, Larry's also shown that if you record neural activity uh, in the left hemisphere, you see activity related both to right and left hand movements and so forth. And so it looks like while there are, there are clear biases um, for, say, our movement activity in MIP compared to LIP, it's a continuum. And, and indeed, if you lesion any of these brain areas, you don't see absolute loss of function. That's one of the remarkable things about parietal cortex is you don't, you don't see people who suddenly can't move their arm because they have a prior lesion. Now, you do see some focal deficits with things like uh, neglect and that sort of thing, but still, they tend to be somewhat diffuse. And so I think that what we, what, what my best thinking about what's going on is that there's a lot of redundancy. Areas specialize to the extent that they, they get more input from one modality, say, or they project more strongly to some motor area, and so they're more involved in the movement. But it isn't right to think of, of these areas as being completely separate. And I'm not the only person that's sort of knocking uh, on the walls of, of specialization. There, um, Mike Graziano at Princeton's got a, a, a complex and somewhat controversial but very interesting story about the distinction between premotor and motor cortex that basically is a similar sort of story that, that you can think about there as being a, a motor cortex in the hand area and an eye area and then in premotor cortex, a ventral and a dorsal premotor and a rostral dorsal and a, and a caudal dorsal and so on and so on and so forth. But that that's not really right. What you're really looking at are just statistical variations on, on a, a many-dimensional map. Uh, and I think there, there are lots of people who are thinking along those lines. And, you know, again, it's sort of, you needed in some ways to first say, let's find the area involved for that. Because if you started out by saying, all these brain areas involved in everything, we never would have gotten every, anywhere. But once that first-order map is there, then we can start saying, well, that's a little too simple. Clearly, there are complexities, and, and go from there. So how do you know the difference between those areas responding directly to the information and being secondary responses to with the interconnectivity in the network? Um, so if they're, they're highly distributed and interconnected, how do you know that the LIP is not just um, receiving information from the connections in, the in this distributed network as opposed to actually responding to the signal to begin with? So unfortunately, we don't have good computational models of these large-scale circuits. Okay. And we don't even have enough physiological data to be able to say anything certain about, about things at the kind of level that you're asking. That said, my intuition is, yes, both. So if you look at, at the actual anatomical connections to pick your favorite area, for example, around the intraparietal sulcus, uh, or your favorite pair of areas, chances are there's a lot of overlapping inputs to those areas. So um, the, the same visual stream areas that project LIP also project not exactly the same patterns, not exactly the same, same strengths, but to a large extent there's a good deal of overlap between LIP and MIP and all these different areas. Okay? There are some cleaner examples of certain projections that are, that are more restricted, but there's a lot of overlap. And indeed, these areas have a lot of interconnection between them. And so uh, what, you're at, what you end up with is something that's very complicated. It's not clear how those circuits process information. And you might think that if everything's too interconnected, then why doesn't it just sort of devolve into a monolithic representation of sensory motor space? Well, that would be too hard to do from a computational perspective. There's something called the curse of dimensionality. If you want to represent a one-dimensional thing with a certain precision, then you need n neurons. If you want to represent a two-dimensional thing with the same precision, you need n squared. And if you want to represent a 10-dimensional thing, then you need n to the 10, and pretty soon you need more neurons than there are you know, atoms in the universe or something. And so you can't represent full, large-dimensional spaces. So there's good computational reasons why there has to be some separation um, 
But it's not, you know, the I don't know the mechanism, but it, there's probably a lot of communication. What about uh, coherence analyses uh, across the regions and determining if there is some um, something happening before one happening before the other, or the timing, you know, timing of, of activity or anything like any of the kind of information is helping in. Yeah, because I, I agree with you that I, I agree that is is uh, distributed network. I, I like the idea, but I'm just wondering how much of it can also be contributed by um, the connections to those areas that are acting more right. more strongly towards something, or even something else you mentioned in your talk, which is the Bayesian bias. How much of this is perhaps um, automatic top down? Well, automatic and top down usually go together, but um, some in some way a bias that's happening in the other cis networks because they are highly interconnected and not really directly responding to the stimulus. Yeah. So I think there are two there are two questions, and they're both sort of at, at the border between theoretical and experimental questions. I mean, they can be addressed both ways. One is what's happening within an area, and what's happening, and the second is what's happening between areas, and they're related because even if you had a high degree of connectivity a priori. If what these, what if if each brain area is basically if the brain areas work in a competitive fashion against each other, then you can create a scenario where um, different brain areas will sort of take control of function uh, to the exclusion of other functions in this competitive process. So there are lots of mo there are lots of models of, of neuronal competition within a brain area. So that for example, you can get. I mean, Cajonan maps and other sorts of things where you get the natural growth of spatial topography, for example. Those are often basically competitive models where neurons are sort of competing to represent space. And that's how you get a coverage of all the space because everybody's competing and everybody wants to cover space. Now, that, that's within an area, but you can imagine that a similar sort of thing is happening across areas where if one area has control of a particular function, it could actually suppress uh, other areas. That's one possibility. So um, it could be that the reason why you don't get completely overlapping function is just because of the anatomy, maybe due to due to development. It could be because of um, competitive processes like this that take place during development, or it could be because of um, competitive processes that are going on all the time, um, a sort of a masking phenomena. It could be that LIP is involved in reaching movements, but MIP is more involved, and so it's sort of suppressing the effect of LIP. And then if you lesioned MIP, maybe immediately LIP would spring into action or something like that. All of those things are possible. We just don't have enough data, honestly. So that's one area. And then within an area, there are these things like the Bayesian effects that you were talking about earlier, where um, a given brain area itself could want to specialize. So it could be trying to, it, it, it could be, if it gets lots and lots of inputs, it could be sort of doing winner-take-all type learning on its own inputs, where it tends to focus its effort, its computational effort, on the inputs that are stronger, and that could snowball, which could potentially create competition between areas. So there's a, there, there, are, there are lots of ways in which, um, both within and between areas, you can get computational pressure to separate out function. Um, and there are people who work on these, at, at, again, at a theoretical level when thinking about just sort of neural networks and how a single area um, builds itself, self-organizing networks and so forth. There, there may be people who are working on it at the scale that we're talking about now, but I don't, I don't know of any examples of it. Related to, to that, and, and, and you probably want, may want to give some context on the Bayesian bias that you're talking about, but I had a uh, question. So my specialty, uh, my research area is language, and I'm actually interested a lot in, in statistical learning within the field of language and um, using that information for automatic prediction and anticipation of, of upcoming information. 
Um, and it's, it's, it resonated a lot with what you were talking about in, in your, the, the Bayesian bias, this automatic bias uh, based on statistical probabilities and based on statistical information in the network and which direction you might move your arm and how precise you are in making that movement and what, how much of a bias you have against the, the in direction. And I was wondering if it, if you would feel comfortable using the word anticipation or expectation in that in that in that context, and if you think that that is something that is um, in in the network, and if so, there's an interesting phenomenon in the language field that there is this very graded effect of this probabilistic uh, predictability of what's coming next. Um, if you see that same graded quality in, in, in your studies. You had some categorical differences, but I don't know how much of a gradient you've tried with, mm-hmm. the, with the probability of occurrence. And then also that this goes away as you age. Um, mm. Elderly tend to use predictive processes less uh, than, than younger adults. And there's some idea that there's an efficiency problem in the network in using, not, not in knowing that the information is there, but in using that information in a timely manner. And I was wondering if you see something similar in the motor. Can, can I ask for a definitional issue? Oh, sorry. A question about, are you talking about like elderly using short-term predictions, like pre- expectations and predictability that you set up in, in a small context versus some long-term thing? I mean, in a sentence context, in, in a, usually in a sentence context within natural uh, language comprehension, uh, elderly are, are less likely to make a, a specific prediction about a specific word that's coming next in the context than young people are. They're less, uh, they're less efficient, they're less good at it, and it's, the idea is that there is a, uh, the efficiency of the system is... is, 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 is yeah, those are really good questions. So let, let me just give a little context about the, the experiment that, that you're talking about. This is um, an experiment where we showed that if you have people make reaching movements where um, at, the, at, the, at the extremes we can contrast a case where most of the movements you're making are sort of uniformly scattered about the workspace, but, but a small number of them are, say, in one given direction. We'll call that the probe direction. And then the other, the other context would be you keep making movements to the probe context over and over and over again, the same movement over and over again. And what we showed was that the variability of movement goes down when you make the same movements over and over again. And maybe that's not surprising. There's a certain amount of practice involved. You keep doing the same thing. You get better at it. That's good. But then we also showed that there's a cost to that, which is that there's, there's a bias. So if in that condition where you keep making the same movement over and over again, I ask you to make a movement that's a little bit off from that target, you'll make an error. At least at the beginning of the movement, you'll start reaching toward the repeated target, not the correct target. And then you may correct online, but, but, but that beginning of the movement was wrong. And we should, we've shown that this is true both for reaching movements and um, in unpublished data for saccadic eye movements. Now, um, we think that th- these data can reflect what is likely to be something like an adaptive prior. And we've shown, it, this is all in a recent paper in Journal of Neuroscience, that you can uh, model that adaptive process as sort of an incremental process in every trial. You take what just happened and use that to update your, your estimate of what we call the prior, which is a statistical construct a Bayesian prior is a probability distribution um, where you think targets will be. Um, and then we also show that a network model with simple heavy learning can, can implement that uh, in a way that's actually quite similar to a, to a model by... Um, uh, by uh, Wu and Amari from some years back. So um, all of that is uh, look is sort of in the context of, of statistical prediction. But I'm totally comfortable with calling that a prediction or anticipation. Sure, why not? Um, that that sort of suggests that there's some additional planning in advance 
that you're, where you're actively anticipating that you wouldn't be doing if there weren't a prior. And I'm not so sure about that in this case. But, but sure, you've got some prior expectation, and that's what's, what's influencing your current movement. And we showed that the, the time scale of the learning is quite quick, maybe in the 5, 10, 15, 20 trial range. So it's a fast effect. Now, um, I think that that idea that you're, that you're incorporating recent experience into what's going to happen next is people have shown that in many different contexts, in perceptual psychophysics, in motor psychophysics, we're not the first people to study Bayesian priors, and, and even in the motor control community, there's a lot of uh, data out there on that. Um, and I think that it's, it's pretty clear that that sort of thing's going on. Now, when you compare it to something like language, there are, I'm not as clear on that, because the context that you're talking about for language, of course, is a much, much longer time scale. It's knowing a lot about your language, um, and it's knowing, it, there's also, there are context effects, of course. The, the word that you would predict next, let, let me reword that. The word that I would predict next, if I were sitting talking to you guys right now, might be quite different than the word I would predict next if I were talking to my six-year-old son and my three-and-a-half-year-old daughter. Um, and so there, there's, a, there's a very huge cognitive structure involved there um, that's quite complicated. I doubt that simple Hamian learning networks in a, of the kind that we've studied could go anywhere near the sort of complexity of what you're talking about. Now, whether they use similar principles at the computational level, yes, I think you can think of it as, as constructing priors on, not so much on words, but on maybe thoughts or sentence structures or something at a, at a higher level. Yeah, I'll buy that. Now, but then the question is, how is it implemented? And there, you're way outside of my area of expertise, but I'm willing to throw out two possibilities. One is that, that even things, even complicated cognitive processes like this are implemented by things that, in essence, look like the models that we think about for motor control. Attractor-type models in a very large dimensional space, whether it be linguistic or cognitive or conceptual, I don't know. And you've got the same kinds of maybe heavy and learning processes, and you're changing the sort of the, 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 the energy landscape of those networks, and it's exactly the same sort of thing. That's one possibility. Another possibility is that those computations are much more like the serial computations that um, underlie, uh, you know, Deep Blue when it plays chess or something like that. That what people are really doing is they're sort of replaying in some real way lots of different sentences that they could come up with, and they're sort of maybe with, uh, to use a buzzword that I don't have time to explain and don't, you know, don't, don't want to, is particle filters. Maybe there's a bunch of little, your neurons are little particle filters playing out sentences you've heard in the past or something like that, maybe. And to how well... The, the, what we study and these things, how are they really analogous at a, at a mechanistic level? Depends on the mechanism for, for language production and there, you know, I think, I think that it's not well enough known, but it's certainly not well enough known by me. I should hope that the brain doesn't do something completely different just because it's language, but... <laughs> <laughs> I guess another sort of broad question that we could talk about that actually you expressed some interest in discussing was what makes a model most useful? And how is it that models and experiments should actually be interacting? And what makes a model most acceptable to the public? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the question of what's the right scale of modeling to be working at or what's an interesting kind of model um, is, is, is a very interesting and important question. And I'm sure um, Todd could talk to this as well. Anyone who's worked in modeling knows how important this question is because I, it's probably fair to say that every single modeler who's ever... Uh, tried to publish a paper, at some point has gotten the comment back that this model is not interesting because it's at the wrong level. Um, and, uh, you know, recently I was at a, at a, at a meeting in my field 
where I was trying to argue about the validity of, of the sorts of network models that we've been working on, that in some ways are really just analogy. We know that the, the specifics of the network model we're looking at are not specifically what's going on in, uh, in say, parietal cortex. But we find, meaning me and, and I hope the people in my lab, find inspiration from those models that helps inform our experiments. Other people look at them and say, they're just so stories. You're making up uh, a network model that can implement something that 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 we think might be interesting, like Bayesian estimation. And there are lots of other network models I could have made up. And it, all it really shows is that you're smart enough to, to be able to write down an interesting model. It doesn't tell us anything about the brain. And so I think those debates, that there's, a, there's you know, the, the, everybody has their own view on these things, I think. My view is that if it helps you understand data in a way that lets you make predictions for future experiments, then it's a really useful model. I don't mean to say that that's the only thing that theory does, but I think it's a very useful thing that theory does. And that's, in many ways, the way that we use theory in my lab. We take experimental data, whether it be behavioral or physiological, that are just hard to make sense of, and use models to make sense of it. And hopefully those models... And those models are really then only really useful if they make predictions for future experiments, ideally across levels. So a, behavior, a model that's based on behavior and makes future predictions for behavior is great, but if it also makes future predictions for what neurons should look like, even better. And then you go and you test, and maybe you are wrong, but at least you did an experiment that, that was driven, that was designed in a way to make a distinction between computationally relevant approaches to a problem. So do you feel that that's not uh, that the field hasn't yet accepted modeling as a, as an analytic tool? It's more meant to be. I mean, is that is that shifting? Do you think? Do, do you think people are sort of seeing it as an exercise that allows you to sort of cross levels and 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 build things that are going to be more relevant to neural? I don't know. Maybe maybe the other people at Taylor are better at able to answer that than me. I mean, I think there was a time definitely. Um, I'm I'm. I grew up, if you will, um, in the early days of the Sloan Centers for Theoretical Neuroscience. So there were centers at um, several institutions, including uh, UCSF, um, Caltech, and the Salk Institute, um, all three of which I've had affiliations with. And uh, now uh, Jerry Schwartz and the, and, the, and the Schwartz Foundation has stepped in, and, and the, the, those centers have grown. Um, but uh, during that era, in the early maybe in the early days of, of at least this kind of theoretical neuroscience, I think there was widely perceived to be maybe animosity on the part of many experimentalists toward theory that the theorists were just sort of wasting their time and that unless they could tell me um, how that what predictions that made about my experiments that it wasn't particularly interesting and um, I, I I don't know that that's still true maybe it's just that that everyone that I know these days uh, has at least if not if not one foot in each field at least a good understanding of the other field so but it seems to me that uh, as as younger people. Uh, who grew up at the same time I grew up, um, become more and more influential in the field, that there's maybe less of a, of a, of a real fight between theory and experiment. Um, but I think that there's still everybody has a strong taste in what they think is a good experiment, a good model, uh, and the right level to be modeling. And, um, yeah, I think that's generally true. What, what do you think? I think, that, I think that's fair. I mean, I think that some of there's different, it's different in different fields. Um, so systems neuroscience, for example, uh, there's a lot of computation, partly because it's kind of in between this conceptualization of behavior and task and recording from lots of if, thinking about what's happening in lots of neurons at lots of different places. And it's a natural language. 
some of these some of these general ideas are easily transferable. There's been some success and some dominant, a lot of theoretical kind of modelers are attracted to those kinds of problems. So you have this for many different reasons. It kind of spreads, and so and I think a lot of the way it spreads is the way you said. It's like that you have people that younger people tends to be younger people that have experience in both worlds and think that's fine and they can make their own decisions. And it's, it's not that they've thought about things from one way and then this, this other approach that's coming in from some other place that they think, oh, convince me, uh, you know, kind of, kind of thing. But that's not, all, that's not always true and it depends on the specific question. And some of it depends a little bit on the use of how some places the theory and those kinds of ideas are not that much more useful than the kind of models that that um, experimentalists have in their head anyway. You know, whether you formalize those ideas, a lot of what you're saying is one of the main purposes of models is kind of like a cartoon that you can actually think about this complex problem without thinking about everything. So it's like a caricature of your problem that you can now get your handle, your head around multiple aspects. Um, and sometimes it's useful to have those in formal ways that you can play with, and sometimes it's not. Um, so I think it's still it's still kind of up in the air at, at that level, but it's, I think it's getting more, you know, it's it's working its way through uh, that perspective. So you know, physiology, everybody has to do a model. It used to be you had four figures in a cartoon. The cartoon was sometimes referred to as a model. And uh, even though obviously it wasn't, and uh, but it was in a sense, in the sense that Todd means this is the the idea that you have in your head about how your findings relate to some other phenomenon, or how my I found this ion channel, and so therefore I think I can predict that cellular firing pattern or whatever. And now the cartoon has almost routinely been replaced by a little computer simulation that performs exactly the same thing. It's a plausibility argument. It is, uh, yes, it is true that these ion channels could produce that kind of pattern of activity if I'm careful to tune them exactly right. And it's just a demonstration. And I don't think, I think it's perfectly fine to call that a model. I think calling that theory is a stretch. <laughs> and, uh, and, I, and as modeling has become more popular, I think theory has become more rare. I, I agree about that. Well, theory's hard to do. <laughs> Let's be honest, right? I mean, the thing about the models is, I, I, you're exactly right what you just described, um, but they, I, you can look at that and say, well, it's trendy and that's what people do and that's fine, but the little picture would have been just as good. And to some extent that's true, but to some extent it's not. It's very easy to have in, computational intuitions that turn out to be wrong. Actually, I didn't mean that the, that the little cartoon was just as good. Uh, okay, because good. a lot of times, as you say... The cartoon works, but the model wouldn't. Yeah, and, and hopefully when you set out to, because we all have our cartoons in mind, right? If you, you know, every scientist is a theorist, right? Every scientist has some model, in quotes, in mind when they set out to do their experiment. And what happens sometimes is that you have that model that would have been that little picture, and then you go to, to implement it, and it turns out it doesn't quite work as, as well as, as, as you think. We I just got finished teaching... Um, in the neuroscience program at UCSF, the first years, um, in a, a, a crash course, and crash might be the right word here, it was an awful lot in a short amount of time, a crash course in statistics and MATLAB, and using MATLAB to do statistics. And I think it's really important for people to learn 
something like MATLAB or other tools that allow them to be able to, whether they're going to publish it or not, to take their intuitions. And I'm not talking about Tony theory here, right? I'm just talking about simple intuitions and play them out a little bit with real numbers to see if they work. And in that way, everybody can be a, a, theory, a computationalist in some sense, in a way that I think is extremely productive and, and really useful. It might even be more useful if they did it before the experiment. <laughs> yes, that would be. <laughs> that would be. Um, and it's interesting, you know, when you go back to these the, the Sloan centers and now the Sloan Sports centers, um, many of the people who've gone through those centers uh, are now a little like me, I guess, in that they, they, have, they have labs that do experiments and they do some theory or computational modeling or, or whatever you want to call it. And the number of them who are really full-time theorists it, has been and remains small. And that there are a number of reasons for that, but I think, honestly, I think the, heart, the, the real reason is because um, being a full-time theorist is an extremely difficult thing to be. To, to, there's a certain amount of creativity um, and, and um, mathematical or computational or, or analytic prowess that's required that precludes most people from being successful full-time theorists. Anyway, theorists might... Even the, the people who could be successful theorists uh, without any experimentation probably are inspired and surprised and energized by having experimental data of their own to work with. I think that. Yeah, but the problem is, is once you, you know, getting the experimental data, it's just hard to have much time to it do it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a lot of work, right? It's I mean, really hard. It's yes. a lot of work <laughs> to have that kind of detached, big picture thing. Anything that you do every day becomes the world, right? And you mm -hmm. have little margins of things and you can think about things. And to have your data not blast you, your perspective on the particular experiments that you do, I think it makes it, it, makes it hard. And just time and uh, uh, a particular focus. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. But if you're if you're pretty committed to some idea and you have some kind of theoretical framework and you're pursuing it, and somebody else's data seems to contradict it, it's sort of pretty easy to shrug it off. If it's your own data, it's harder. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's right. It's an interesting question. I mean, if we could if we could take everybody who thinks of themselves at least partly as an experimentalist and partly as a theorist and split them in half and give them some autonomy. Um, uh, you know, is that a better way to do science? Is it better for one person not to try to do both? Um, because in some ways they, they, there's a sacrifice on both sides. Or is it that the synergy that happens when you have one, uh, and I won't say one person, but let's say one lab, uh, doing it all at the same time, is that synergy better? And there's certainly, it certainly does happen that when you have good, smart, creative, analytic thinkers sitting right next to the people collecting the data on a day-to-day -day basis, and they're their friends, and they can't shrug off what they see. That's right. There's a power to that. And that's, you know, hopefully what's, what, I, what I hope will emerge and is emerging from my lab. But, uh, you know, there's a... It's kind of like, it should be kind of like Area 5 at MIP. <laughs> where both of them have a mix, and then it's tilted more it's one way, a little bit more the one way, or a little bit more the other. You know, it's interesting, though, that, that I know a number of people, many people recently, who've talked about trying to publish papers that are mixed experiment and theory. And it can be a challenge. Um, we had a, a paper recently um, that was, well, it was a long road with this paper. And um, 
one of the things we were told is that the model just simply didn't do a good enough job of predicting the data. That the two, in essence, the two curves didn't lie enough, quite enough together. And, you know, one answer to that is you're right. We won't try to post them together. One answer is, um, well, uh, we'll go back and we'll keep fitting our model until it looks better. That right. doesn't seem like the right answer. Um, and then the other one is something like, well, that's not the point. And the problems with all of these um, approaches, clearly just going back and saying, well, we'll keep working on our model until it fits our data better, that's not good, because you can do that, but then it's going to do worse on the next data set. So that's not a good approach. Um, that's clearly overfitting. And then the question is, if you, ha if, you, if you have an idea that sort of bifurcates into a model and, and an experiment, do you have to publish them separately because they don't perfectly match? Or can you put them together and say, here's the big picture and here's how we're thinking about it, even though these two components don't perfectly hang together? And, that, and this is an experience that we've had that's still maybe a little, a little fresh for me, but, but, but lots of people, have, I've talked to lots of people who have had similar kinds of experiences. And I, I personally feel that if both parts of the paper are, are strong enough that it's, that it's nice to see those things together, even if it's potentially misleading, people might read it as saying they've, they've shown that this is done that way. But that, that's because you have lazy readers. Uh, you know, if you want to read it right, you'll, you'll see that that's not what people so are saying. So how did it turn out? Or did you do? Well, it turned out that you we go published, back and get data we, that fit your model better? Well, we that did, was another we did, option you didn't we, mention. We, well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> right. well, we, we, we did a little bit of all of that. Um, we did go back and collect new data because the data were noisy to start with. We did improve the fitting of our model, which I wasn't that keen on doing, but we did it. And indeed, it fit better. Um, and then we basically said we were, well, we decided not to split the paper, which would have been an option at one journal, and we decided to publish it together at another journal. And so, you know, I think that was kind of a mishmash. But I, but I, think, there's, I think there's a power in publishing multiple ideas in one paper, which is definitely not the style these days, right. um, but I think there's a power in it. Yeah. Thanks so much for being with us, Philip Savis. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thank you.